This is an ABC podcast. G'day, it's Clint Jasper with you. Let's catch up with our reporters exploring a big country. This week, we're pedalling through regional Queensland with a dedicated group of bike riders. But there's no lycra in sight. This crew is all about celebrating single speed, fixies and old bikes, with one rider taking his almost 100-year-old bike for a spin. We'll catch up with a 12-year-old who's juggling the demands of school life alongside running a thriving little business selling layer hens. And we'll meet a woman who's turned her passion for gardening into a full-time career. She's tapping into the growing demand for vegetable seeds. Like a lot of people, uh, Nana was a great gardener and she sort of taught me the ropes and, you know, taught me about nutrition and all the microbes and all the different things that, you know, plants need to thrive. So from there I sort of, it developed and, you know, like a lot of people, you start with a couple of seeds or a couple of plants from the, the plant shop and then you get hooked and now it's a bit of an addiction, so I just keep collecting seeds. We'll meet that seed collector who turned her hobby into her day job coming up. But first today, most flower farmers grow their blooms for the cut flower market. But a Queensland couple have found their big red kangaroo paws are in demand for use in the cosmetics industry. And Jennifer Nichols has the story. As the rising sun clears away the morning mountain mist on this farm in Queensland's Sunshine Coast hinterland, long rows of striking big red kangaroo paw plants in full bloom are revealed. So these are the stems that we cut because they're ready to cut. You can see the stem is nice and solid and firm. Lodi and Yucca Palmea used to grow native Australian flowers for the ornamental market. Now, they're not so worried about how these kangaroo paw flowers look. It's what's inside that counts. If they've got a bird bite, we think, okay, the birds know that's a good stem. We should just follow them, right? So then we take that stem as well. These plants are now a prized ingredient in anti-wrinkle creams. Just to help older people look a bit younger, I guess. (laughs) I can do with some of that. (laughs) Extra firming skin cream it's for, but they now have multiple customers for this extract. Hello, I'm Jennifer Nichols. On the day I visited the Palmeyers property at Curramore near Mullaney, a high-ranking executive from their biggest customer had travelled from France, accompanied by his Australian partners, to inspect top-of-the-range flowers. I think it's a great honour for us. You know, we've been working hard for this to get this sort of recognition and now that these people are keen to come and have a look to see what we're doing to confirm that we're growing things the way we say we are. Uh, my name's Marty Short. I'm the technical director of Southern Cross Botanicals, which is a business that specialises in the development of Australian native botanical products for the global cosmetics industry. Our business has about 14 employees. I'd say 95% of our business is actually export to the major brands in both Europe and the US, but we're also in pretty much every single global territory, including Asia and Africa. Me personally, I've been in the role for about a decade. Um, It started off as a small family business that was then acquired by a French cosmetics company called Lucas Meyer Cosmetics. And then that company was acquired by International Flavours and Fragrances. You look at the kangaroo paws here around us, they're so beautiful, but I hadn't really thought about the cosmetic qualities of them. What is it about the kangaroo paw that makes it special? This particular plant improves a cellular part 
pathway within the skin to upregulate the expression of collagen and elastin. We've got a patent on the product. Uh, we weren't the only company to discover just how effective it is. All of our customers have then run their own trials on this product and have found similar results. The big results are a reduction in the appearance of wrinkles. We were screening a whole series of Australian native plants. This particular plant came across my bench and I entered it into the trial and fortuitously we'd also submitted the product to a, a major global brand Clarins that also ran a similar trial and both research departments found very very similar results and then it, things just snowballed from there. I imagine that this particular ingredient's in at least 30 to 50 brands globally. What other native Australian botanicals have you been using? Oh, we've got quite a vast array of Australian botanicals from kakadu plum to caviar lime to Tasmanian pepperberry. Um, I'd say we've commercialised close to 30 different Australian native botanicals, uh, creating grower networks, creating viable agricultural models for farmers who are looking to stay on the land and create value in what they're doing. And you've got quite strict standards, so you're expecting a fully organic product here so that there's no nasty is going onto people's skins at the end yeah, of it. Yeah, correct. It's very much a marketing pivot that you'll find in the cosmetics industry. It's a pressing topic, sustainability and also healthy, true-to-nature type products. You know, it didn't make a great deal of sense for Lodi at the time to transition into organic agriculture because of the costs associated with it. But then once he saw the business potential for us to sell organic product, he made that transition and that's reflected in the price that we're prepared to pay for the ingredient off him because there's obviously higher labour inputs to achieve organic certification. The demanding process of going organic took Lodi and Yucca Pamea three years to complete. Secure contracts have meant they've been able to employ two people with disabilities to hand weed the farm instead of using chemicals. And I think that gives us a bit of a thrill and a bit of uh, enjoyment and it gives us a little bit more flexibility in our time off and it works well for our business as well. And now they're value adding by processing the plants on the farm. Look at the temperature. Are you ready for this? 49.4 degrees Celsius. Whoa! It is warm in here. This is our first season that we're going to be doing the drying and the milling. Last year we did the shredding and a different company then freeze-dried it. But they have found from some trials that we did earlier that doing it all straight on the spot does provide better levels of actives for them. So they're very happy that we're going to be able to do it on the farm. It's amazing to think that what you produce here on your farm at Curramore outside Mullaney is used in some of the top brands right around the world. Well, we just think of all those lovely ladies out there and gentlemen too that are using our product and making them feel better about themselves and I think it's our little contribution to the world. It's a late, mild spring afternoon in the central Queensland city of Rockhampton and Warren Royal is getting ready to take his almost century-old bike out for a spin. In the late 60s when my grandfather died, my parents were going to put this in the dump and I said, no, 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 you don't. So I took it home and hung it up in the shed and about, about seven or eight years ago I pulled it down and made sure it worked again. So. It was built new in 1923, it hasn't changed. 
have you had to do much to it to get it to tires that's all anything. no tires only yeah a bit of oil he doesn't get to ride this bike too often but thanks to a rather unique local cycling group He's ready to tour the city centre's historical buildings and laneways. We were learning the history of Rockhampton, and I'm a real old Rocky lover. It's good fun to get out because we normally go and have a meal afterwards. Hello, I'm Katrina Bevan. I've caught up with Warren and other riders in the quirkily named Gentlefolk Single Speed Fixie and Old Bike Society group. Organiser Peter Kane appreciates the group's name is quite a mouthful, but he says that's half the fun. Oh, I have trouble saying the name sometimes, it's so long. But the name, the name sort of says it all, like it's just meant to be fun, right? So it's just meant to be fun. Yeah. You've actually got to get a special permission from Facebook to have a name that long on the, on, on the page. <laughs> <laughs> Peter says the group began in 2015 and then expanded. And our intention is to, uh, to have fun and to take those old bikes that are in the shed out and give them a, give them a whirl. You know, we've got one rule, no lycra. <laughs> Yeah, we started out with a couple of us trying to be cool dudes riding our fixies around town. And then people said, well, I haven't got a fixie, but I've got an old bike. So we, we, we extended the name to the Gentlefolk Single Speed Fixie and Old Bike Society. When we introduced old bikes, it became a bit of a history lesson. So people wanted to match their old bikes up with old things in Rockhampton. So each ride's got a theme. Um, we love the laneways theme, so we have a number of rides you know, going exploring the laneways of Rockhampton and the old buildings on the riverbank. And another theme is Rockhampton as a port city, because Rocky used to be a, you know, a major port in, uh, in Queensland, so we do that. But we also go out in the suburbs. You, know, you wouldn't believe the history in places like Park Avenue or uh, Coongal, uh, French Fall. There's lots of interesting things in this town um, and we try and, and dig in and explore it on our bikes. Everyone is encouraged to bring their oldest bike along, even if it was only bought six months ago. Attendee Zara Lee Goodson purchased her modern penny farthing just last year. It's a lot of fun, gets a lot of attention and um, especially in the group like this where yeah, everyone just riding something different. Actually it's very easy to ride, it's just about the um, dismounting and um, getting on it in the first place. Um, once you're on it, it's actually very balanced and very easy to ride. So I have a lot of different bikes as well. So I have uh, penny farlings and I have um, recumbent bicycles and tricycles and normal bicycles. But we, I ride practically every single one of them. And every single one of the, my bikes has got a different group and different um, collectives with it. So um, And everyone supports each other in cycling. So we all have a lot of fun. It's very inclusive. Just a little south of Rockhampton, in the town of Mount Morgan, Graham Mead boasts a huge collection of vintage bikes. It's so large, he doesn't know exactly how many bikes are in it, but he guesses it's somewhere between 50 and 100. I've got some bikes that are fully restored and very good condition, and I've got some bikes that are just rusty frames that need to have, you know, all that I need to collect things for and build up. Yeah, a lot of it is the story behind the bikes. It's good to share some of the stories. And like, and I've, I've got a push bike that um, I bought off the um, child of the man and he, he rode it every day to the meatworks all his life. You know, from when he, he bought it when he was um, an apprentice or whatever. And he worked there all his life and he rode that bike virtually every day. So that's just a little story about a bike. Graham began collecting bikes 20 years ago while living and working in Brisbane. 
The collection is diverse, ranging from a 1930s unicycle to 1980s road bikes, 1990s mountain bikes, roadster-style bikes from the 1940s, 50s and 60s, and includes a bike owned by famous cyclist Phil Anderson. I don't know why I sort of started collecting push bikes, but I know at the time I had a, um, a shed and I had cars, and so I had about six cars, and I sold one of the cars, and I realised far out, I can put about 15 push bikes in that space of a car. So that's what I did. I had a space in the shed, and you know, push bikes are easy. You can hang them off the wall. You can do, you know, you can make displays with them. That's just sort of how it started. It's just sort of morphed and and grown, and then it's just something that I do yeah. Graham hopes to open a museum for the bikes to try and bring more tourism to Mount Morgan which has struggled through drought in recent years. I'll either do it in the shop I've got here or I have an opportunity that I might take the um, church hall down the road there and but that might take a bit longer. Mount Morgan is sort of been you know on its back for a long time and it's just another little thing to try and encourage people to come up whereas if you have half a dozen smaller things well then that can cover people for a day to come up and worth the drive and when people that live in Rockhampton, Yapoon and around CQ when they have family friends come up and they say oh, for a week and they're getting bored you know what can we do and they say well let's go up to Mount Morgan for a day and have a drive around there's you know plenty of nice old pubs to have a feed in and stuff like that. That was Graham Mead from Mount Morgan in central Queensland who has an impressive vintage bike collection. He spoke to reporter Katrina Bevan. You can see more on that story including a video of some of the old and unusual bikes and their riders who joined a recent group ride in Rockhampton. Just head online to the ABC RN homepage, you'll find a big country under the programs tab. And I'm Clint Jasper with you for A Big Country. Still to come, we'll meet an entrepreneurial farmer who started his business at the age of 10 and how a love of seeds and gardening led to a new chapter for a former chef who was laid off during the pandemic. So I'm just sowing some pumpkin seeds of a rare small variety. It's a Japanese variety, very old, very rare. So I'm just uh, planting the seeds about one centimetre deep because it, it's rather small seeds, not like the bigger pumpkin seeds. So these will take about uh, five to seven days to germinate perhaps. Now I'll put these on heat mats to get them started and make sure they've kept out of the frost until sort of mid-November for our area. Pottering in the garden and collecting and propagating seeds used to just be a hobby for Abby Howard, but in the past two years it's become her full-time job. It started for me uh, during COVID. All the seed companies uh, were under a bit of pressure, selling out of seeds. Um, and somehow one of my seeds that I had on eBay and completely forgot about sold. And I had just lost, uh, been stood down from my job as a chef. And I thought, well, I'm unemployed. I've been saving my seeds for years. And I added a few listings and it, it just completely took off and took on a life of its own. And I always say I'm just its employee now, it, it does what it wants and, and I just, I'm along for the ride. Are you still chefing? I did this for a year, sort of established the business and, and did all the, the admin work and setting up and, and sourcing, you know, seeds, you know, for genetics and, and getting all that sort of stuff right. And once it was, uh, once I was comfortable um, with how it was travelling along, 
um, whether it was a stable income. I decided to give up my job as a chef in May last year, I believe. So I've been doing this full time for a year and it's, it's earning an income for me. And yeah, I, I sort of sell across three different platforms mostly and, and do a few markets and yeah. Hello, I'm Larissa Smith and I'm chatting to Abby in the garden at her property at Bridge North in the Tamar Valley region of northern Tasmania. She says gardening has always been a passion. Like a lot of people, uh, Nana was a great gardener and she sort of taught me the ropes and, you know, taught me about nutrition and all the microbes and all the different things that, you know, plants need to thrive. So from there I sort of, it developed and, you know, like a lot of people, you start with a couple of seeds or a couple of plants from the, the plant shop and then you get hooked and now it's a bit of an addiction. So I just keep collecting seeds, but I've I've decided... <laughs> No more seeds, no more new varieties, just let's keep improving the ones we've got. So what are some of your key interests? You, you do veggies but also some natives? Yes, I, I do a few natives just from where I sort of collect from friends and, and people with different farms and, you know, sort of wilderness areas and I just sort of look out for, for those natives and, and things like that. But my, my main passion is uh, my sunflowers. Uh, my teddy bear sunflowers so I buy and I buy in some florist grade sunflowers that are pollen free and, and design their sort of hybrids so they're just for, for fancy flowers but I, I grow about eight varieties of my own that's my main obsession but being a chef you know other than my sunflower is my vegetables you know I sort of know what um, a good vegetable needs to look like or be or you know I know sort of know what I'm looking for and tastes and flavours so when I sort of select my varieties or select which to take seeds from there's, there's taste tests and making sure nothing's too bitter or you know not according to the what it's meant to be. And you pack a fair bit into this small property can you tell me what you've got under those polytunnels and some other coverings I guess at this early stage of getting crops started for spring? I have a little bit of everything so I've just built a new uh, big sort of uh, market garden size garden uh, it's a bit over 50 metres long I've got them in three three separate sections two sections got prepped in autumn and I've just finished doing the last one so I have seeds I have lots of lettuces um, I have broad beans peas all the gardens are getting prepped, adding biochar, nutrients, um, all the different fertilisers, fresh compost. Um, so they're getting prepped for zucchinis and cucumbers and, and all that sort of thing, um, which I'll put in just after November, after the risk of frost. But I've got, um, with my different structures, I've got two greenhouses here. So one will have tomatoes in it and the other one, that's the newer one. So it's all, all fresh, fresh, happy soil. And in the other one, uh, it is six years old and it had tomatoes in it last year. So just for crop rotation, that one will be full of, full of uh, chilies and, and eggplants and, and some cucumbers. Uh, another structure I've been working on this year is uh, some tunnel sort of arches and I'll put uh, insect netting over those. So my sort of uh, main priority with my seed saving is avoiding cross-pollination between different varieties. So I need to keep the purity selling heirloom seeds. The idea being I have uh, three different uh, tunnel structures and, and each one will have uh, different varieties of crops that commonly cross-pollinate or are easy to cross-pollinate like carrots, brassicas, onions, things like that. So in each tunnel I have, I'll have a selection of those crops and uh, the idea being every day one tunnel gets access to the bees. So we've got two, two hives here to, to make sure pollination is going well. Being a small farm that's our best bet to make sure you know, we keep seed purity, but also managing being a small, small scale 
little hobby farm. So have you seen that demand from backyard growers increase over the last two years that you've been doing this? There's lots of different things on the news which worry a few people. A lot of people are getting into gardening. Gardening Australia was a favourite of mine and, and everyone else is, is jumping on board with, with that program. So, you know, great opportunity to, to learn. The demand has, has definitely not stopped. I it, When I first started, I thought, well, we'll see how this goes. Maybe after COVID, everyone might go back to normal and, and not want seeds anymore. But it's definitely um, remained steady, if not increased. Uh, I suppose the more varieties I, I grow and add, you know, that helps keep things ticking along. Because these are like, I don't have children, so these are all like my grandchildren, you know. So when I harvest seeds and send them off into the world, it's, you know, I hope that they have a nice, it's really sad, but I hope they have a nice little life. And, and when I get, you know, feedback, it's like, oh, the, the, the children, grandchildren are, are doing well in life. It's really sad. But, but that's how I think of it, yeah. These chirpy and very noisy three-and-a-half-week-old chicks are the latest arrivals to Fletcher McCulloch's flock. One, Bob, two, Bob, three, Bob, four, up to 500. Fletcher oversees a booming little chicken empire that he started from scratch two years ago at the age of 10. So basically we started with four or five family chooks and we had a few extra eggs so I just put them on my mum's Facebook page and they went pretty fast and a few other people had said if you have any more put my name down so I ended up going up to a, a, another chook farm and getting 10 um, older chooks that had already been laying for about 12 months and then I ended up with getting about a dozen eggs a day. Fletcher's business which almost started by accident took off at a great pace. It just started with the family chooks and then I really enjoyed like being outside with them and doing farm work with my pop on his farm um, and then I ended up just starting it gradually and then I got 50 day old chicks and then I got did that for a few years about probably a year and then I got 200 for about a year and then I went 300 and then straight away after that a couple months later we got 320 and then a couple months after that I've gotten 500. I started in January 2020. So you must have been 10 when you started. Yeah, I was. Hello, I'm Meg Powell. I've caught up with 12-year-old Fletcher on his family's property at Turner's Beach in northwest Tasmania, where he reckons he's producing some of the best laying hens in this part of the state. His dad, Damien, says he hasn't been surprised by his son's business acumen. I've always owned my own businesses and... I've always thought it doesn't really matter uh, what age you are, um, if you've got a plan or a dream, um, yeah, you're never too young to follow it. So, Eleni Mum, he asked for some money, one of the thousand dollars I think it was that he lent, and I didn't think I would see that again, but he's uh, paid that back. I bought ten chooks for ten bucks each, and then I bought some food and stuff, and I paid Dad back from egg money. What's it been like watching your son develop and grow this business into something? It's pretty huge. It's it's legit. Yeah. Last week I did try to buy half of it off him and he refused to <laughs> let me buy into it. Well, he, I've worked out the uh, cost, like the amount it's worth, and he wasn't willing to pay it, so... <laughs> so yeah. Oh, he drives a hard bargain. Mm, yes. Yeah. Where'd he learn that, I wonder? <laughs> He's gone from... Even his 
things like maths and so he sits up at night and um, plans his dream farm and how many chooks he can have and things like that. So he, he knows what all his budget is. He knows how much he needs to make, how much he needs to sell his chooks from and his confidence with when he's got clients coming to buy chooks has grown so he's more than happy to go out there now and shake their hand and tell them all about the chooks and how to look after chooks and um, even dealing with money has yeah, he's grown a big time like that. Fletcher, do you, do you feel like your confidence has grown as you, you've had to call people and, and meet strangers and do all things like that? Yeah, um, I used to be scared of meeting people that I didn't know, like meeting lots of people that I didn't know. And it's kind of like when I first started, Dad always, I always made him come out with me to help me um, and just so then I'd feel safe. But now I feel safe just being out in my backyard with other people because... Um, I can have my dog by my side and it's just, yeah, it's made me feel a whole lot easier to talk to people. What, what are your plans for the future, Fletcher? You're, you're a very young man. You, you must have dreams of what you um, want to do one day with all of this. Yeah, so I want to get my own farm, a couple hundred acres, and have about 9,000 lane chooks and a uh, couple hundred cows and then um, sell the eggs to IGAs or things like that. That was 12-year-old Fletcher McCulloch telling Meg Powell how he started his chicken farm when he was just 10 years old. That's the show for today. Thanks for listening and bye for now. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.